0: Good morning and welcome church. It's so good to see y'all today. What a powerful morning, right? Amen. Thank you guys so much. And visitors, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so good to have y'all with us. We'd love to get to know you and your families. Uh, So if you have any questions, don't make yourself a stranger. We'd love to get to know you guys and and love y'all. A few quick announcements before we get into what we're getting into. On classes. <clears throat> we have a new slate of classes that are kind of coming up in January as it's a new year. And this morning, Steve Burgess is going to be starting a class in the Connections classroom that is focusing on being peacemakers. And I think it's such an important topic. Uh, and during the next few weeks, they're going to be looking at a biblical response to conflict and how we are to be ministers of reconciliation and to be peacemakers on the earth, which is such a an important topic for the church today, so I highly, highly recommend uh, being a part of that class. Also, next week, the 14th, um, Brian Bass and Mike Smith are going to be starting up a class, and it's about fearlessly walking into our new identity in Jesus. And there's a lot of lies we be- lies a lot of lies we believe um, about who we are, but through Jesus, we are able to be set free from. Shame, Guilt, and Fear. It's gonna be an awesome class as well. And since we're plugging classes, I'm also gonna plug a class that I'm going to be heavily involved with starting on the 21st. And this isn't gonna be a class for everybody, but the class is specifically about leadership and discipleship. And it's, for, it's tailored to people who are interested in being a leader of the discipleship groups that we're gonna be launching in 2024 uh, for Fourth Avenue. And I'll have a lot more details about what that's going to look like, but it's going to be a high commitment sort of class. So it's not just going to be you come and you feel good. There's going to be like homework and stuff with it, which is what everybody loves to do. Um, but, but disciple-making is the way of Jesus. That's what he started, um, and it's what's changed the world. And, and I'm really excited about Fourth Avenue starting up just one disciple-making movement among many. <clears throat> and speaking of God being on the move today and doing awesome things. We're going to have three baptisms. So um, right over here, we have Terry, Jessica, and Ensley Cox, and uh, their whole household is getting baptized today, and it's going to be a really special time. Yeah, amen. So thank you all for leading us in worship. Late in the summer of 1666, And just because there are three sixes next to each other doesn't mean that's the mark of the beast. (laughs) Isaac Newton was sitting under an apple tree, and an apple just bonked him right on the head. And he was really confused. He was like, why is it that apples always fall down to the ground from trees as opposed to going upward to the sky? And through a series of questions, it led him to the discovery of gravity, that there is a force that is pulling this apple from a state of rest down to the ground. It kinda sounds weird to say someone found or invented gravity, right? As if before 1666 people had no idea that things fell to the earth. But though we experience the pull of gravity today, all of us do in a literal way, we can also feel this sort of gravitational force, this automatic response that pulls us towards the things that we want, even things that may be detrimental to us. We are often drawn to things that can pull us down, drag us down. And perhaps one of the biggest forces that keeps pulling us down is, oh, wrong pocket, this device. (laughs) I mean, how often do we feel this sort of gravitational pull towards our smartphones? Like if we're in an awkward social situation or we're just bored, like how automatic is this magnetic force that just comes and pulls it out of our pocket, right? Or maybe talking about money. If you have a decision to make of do I do this job or this job, this one makes a lot more money as opposed to this one, how often do you feel the pull to take the path in which you are more financially well off? And speaking of lust, how often, whenever um, you're by yourself, do you feel this pull to maybe watch something that you shouldn't, or a TV show that you know is gonna trigger you in some way, right? We feel this gravitational pull in a lot of different things from things that we are desiring, even if they bring us down, but yet we keep coming back to them. Some of it might come from not recognizing that these things are actually bad for us, we think they're fulfilling. Some of it may be this sense of powerlessness, like there is nothing I can do to stop this, And just in the moment it might feel right or good to partake in it. But if we pay attention to these gravitational forces in our lives, if we look at the things that we are drawn to, the habits that we keep feeling compelled to continue, it actually can be a pretty good test to see what we worship. But all the things that we are pulled into worshiping fall tremendously short in light of the God who is worthy of all our worship. We've been going through a series on the beautifully strange book of Revelation. And from this point on in the series, I'm just gonna warn y'all, it's gonna get even more strange, far more strange than anything that we've talked about thus far. It's really easy to do a series on the first three chapters of the book. I mean, anybody can do that. But once we start getting into four and beyond, that's when apocalyptic literature really starts taking off. And we have a lot of really poetic, weird, but yet immensely beautiful language here. And the next three weeks are kind of gonna be like a little mini-series on worship. And it's coming specifically from chapters four and five. And to me, I feel like I say this like every week, <laughs> it's hard to find more beautiful chapters in all of the Bible than these two. I am so, so pumped to get into Revelation four and five. So let's, let's get into it. Chapter four. John, the author of this book, gets a beautiful vision from heaven. It says, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, which, a quick pause, if you contrast that to uh, chapter three, in which Jesus is standing at our door knocking. Our door is closed, and Jesus is wanting to come into it, but if you look up to heaven, the door swung wide open. An open, welcoming invitation. How cool is that? And the same voice I would heard before, spoke to me like a trumpet blast, this royal authoritative pronouncement. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the Spirit, which is an interesting little phrase. I think it means that he was in this sort of prophetic trance, this vision from the Holy Spirit. And I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it, which is language that's used in the Old Testament to describe God. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and Carnelian and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. This is kind of similar to the vision we see of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter one in which the throne is made up of these really precious metals and gemstones and also we see later in this book, New Jerusalem, the pillars are made up with a lot of the same material. All of this imagery is just simply trying to come up with human words to describe the indescribable majesty of God. And then in verse four it says 24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them and they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads, which we're gonna come back to this verse more next week. But a big question a lot of people have is who are these elders, who's that talking about? Are they the heroes of the faith? Are they Christian martyrs? Are they angelic members of heaven? Not sure, but I think the best interpretation of things that I've read is that it's representative of God's combined people. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, the New Testament, the 12 apostles, together the fullness of God's people. And the number 24 also, even in ancient time, represented fullness because of the hours in the day. So that's also very fitting for what we're about to read about all of heaven continually worshiping God night and day, day and night. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, which is straight from Exodus and Mount Sinai and God's glory being revealed there. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. So these torches are representing the sevenfold spirit of God, which what is that? (laughs) What is that? Um, A lot of people think that it's referring to angels, but personally, uh, again, the number seven in Judaism is representative of fullness, completeness, and of the Spirit. I believe it's it's saying the fullness of the Holy Spirit is present here at the throne of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal, which could be a nod to uh, the temple and the water basin that was used for cleansing and purification rituals. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings. This is when things get really weird. Each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, (laughs) inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. This is a really fascinating little chunk here, right? Honestly, kind of nightmare fuel, right? If you really think about the image that's being portrayed here, you have beings that are covered with eyes all over their bodies and wings, like what? (laughs) That's weird. But I think that's representative of their knowledge, their wisdom, and each of these animals or the human face it's, that's mentioned here is all representing something as well. The lion is representing the authority or the, uh, the most powerful being among wild animals. The ox, it's the same thing except for domestic animals. The eagle is the authority, the ruler of the sky and the human is the authority over all the creatures. And their knowledge and their dominion are recognizing the one who is on the throne as worthy of worship, which is almost like a, oh, well, if these amazing creatures are giving all of their worship to the God on the throne, how much more should we? And then they sing the song (laughs) that we sing in so many of our worship songs, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in verse nine, it says, whenever the living beings or all living things give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And they exist because you created what you pleased. And if you were to jump over to Revelation chapter five and verse 11, we'll get to the other stuff uh, in chapter five which is also just amazingly beautiful. In verse 11 it says, then I looked again, just imagine this, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and they sang blessing, and honor, and glory, and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. What a powerful image of heaven, right? Like, (laughs) that is amazing. Do you realize how much Revelation four and five have shaped our worship songs? Like how often we sing the words that come from here? I would argue that there may not be a more worshipful book in all of the Bible than Revelation. And let me try to paint this picture a little bit more for you, okay? So in the center of heaven is the throne, and God seated on it. And with him is the lamb, Jesus, the son of God, and surrounding the throne is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then what we have next, as it's described in Revelation, are these concentric circles of people, of beings, all creation, surrounding the throne of God day and night, worshiping. You have the four living creatures, you have the 24 elders, you have thousands and millions of angels. And not to mention all the tribes, tongues, and nations that are gonna be in there as well as we're gonna read here in a little bit. (laughs) I'm gonna be honest with you guys, whenever I saw that, whenever I started really sitting with this image, I just had to stop my sermon preparation. I just stopped. I was like, I can't just move on and keep typing words. Are you kidding me? Like, I I felt like I couldn't breathe. Like I was hit again with just this immense weight of the glory of God. I mean, this is the stuff that changes people. And we are invited up into heaven to experience and and to continue to participate in the worship that is already happening in heaven here. Throughout our lives, uh, Sunday mornings and, and every other day of the week, we are invited to worship God here as in heaven. We get to participate in the worship that has been going on from the dawn of time, to be elevated up to God and his throne, joining in the chorus of creation. I think about the uh, Christian contemporary song I can only imagine, it's like my dad's favorite song. (laughs) But I love this prompting these questions. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Just envision yourself in that scene. You are witnessing this spectacle of something unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. What is your response going to be? I can tell you time and time again in scripture, we see pretty similar responses whenever people are experiencing the fullness of the glory of God. Think about Moses in the burning bush. He has to hide his face and take off his sandals. Whenever he experiences God on Mount Sinai, he has to fall on his face because the glory of God is so powerful. When you see Peter, James, and John in the New Testament, as they are looking at the transfigured Christ, and they hear the voice of God, they can't help but fall on their faces. And you see with heaven, everybody casting their crowns and bowing down, right? They are experiencing the gravity of God. The gravity of not even being able to stand before him. The gravity of being pulled more and more into his glorious presence, as we see with those circles, right? And I pray that this morning we experience that, church. And I just want to encourage you that if you have felt in your life any level of holding back in worship, maybe that you're not supposed to be expressive in any kind of way or show much emotion at all, and that that could come from a really reverent posture, right? But I want you to feel the invitation of scripture to respond to God's glory accordingly. I used to be so quick to judge people if they showed any level of expression. Like if they raised their hands or or clapped their hands, it's like, oh, they're performative and making it about them, right? (laughs) But as humans, we are mind, body, and soul. And if something is stirring in our souls, our bodies want and need to respond, right? At football games or concerts, right? How quick are we to feel the energy to jeer the refs whenever they make a mistake and jump up and scream when we score a touchdown, but yet we feel squelched here? Whenever this is really the God that should get all the celebration and praise more than anything else, right? And I, I, I can tell you this, whenever I stand before God in his glory, I can guarantee you I'm not gonna have my hands in my pockets and be like, "Nah." This, this is okay, you know, and I've seen better, um, you know, maybe if you had some fog machines or something, it could be a little bit better, I, right, like, are you kidding me? This is the God of the universe, right? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have a feeling I'm going to fall on my face and weep because I am not worthy to stand in his presence, but he makes me worthy, This unending pull towards the glory of God and this weight that has been experienced by so many people throughout time that has made them fall to their face and gravitate towards the glory of God is accessible to us. And just like in our solar system, which I thought about this this week, and again, this is like mind-blowing stuff. At the center of our solar system is the sun. And all the planets perfectly orbit it. Perfectly, like we are moving at just the right velocity and there is just enough of a gravitational pull from the sun that we are perfectly in the same orbit, that we are not slowly getting sucked into the sun to explode, right? That's wild! I mean, I look at some of this fine tuning and I'm like, how do you not think that there's a God, (laughs) right? That all happened by chance? I don't know, I, I don't buy it. Also, I'm biased, I'm a pastor, but, um, but just like our solar system in which everything is revolving around this focal center point, just like atoms right in the nucleus and all the electrons are revolving around it, in heaven, in the universe, there is at the center of all reality a holy, incomparable, indescribable God that is worthy of all worship, Amen. And part of me wonders if, like, God made the solar system, if God made atoms to just reflect what is already true in nature, what is true about him. (laughs) God alone, God alone is worthy of all worship. But this raises the question, do we recognize God as the one on the throne? Do we live as though we believe that? If we were to take a second, if we were real with ourselves, who or what is on the throne of our universe? Or in other words, who or what do we worship? Because we all worship something. I've read this quote before and I think it's extremely fitting again today from David Foster Wallace who is a writer and an agnostic. He said this, There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Whew. We all worship something, church. It's just a question of, do you want to ultimately be disappointed by putting your faith and your worship in something that is temporary, something that is unsatisfying, Ourself or other things? Or do you want to experience what all of heaven is experiencing in this unending worship of God in which somehow they never get tired of because they are worshiping the eternal, holy, unlike anything imaginable God? So what do we worship? A good way to view this is by looking at how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy and how much or little God is involved in any of those decisions. I think we are so easily being pulled down by so many petty, distracting things whenever God has opened up a door into heaven for us to enter in. And this isn't me speaking from a holier-than-thou position. This is repentance. Because I can so quickly even after experiencing this week, again, the weight of the glory of God, I can so quickly lose sight of who this is all for. I can lose sight of the focal point of all reality in existence. And I feel this gravitational pull towards things that are hamstringing me for the kingdom of God. And I believe that God has so much grace. Amen, praise God for that. But I also think we limit the power of God in our lives by refusing to be a living sacrifice for him which is what Romans 12 says is true and proper worship, a life that is completely dedicated to God. We live today, and I think churches everywhere are falling prey to this, we live in a time of such high compromise and low spiritual commitment that anything that resembles true discipleship and following Jesus is dismissed as legalism. And I get the feeling of being burned by legalism and having all sorts of church hurt, I understand it. But God is offering us church so much more than what we are settling for. I think of the words of 2 Timothy 4, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. I feel like Paul could have copied and pasted that probably at any point of history and it would have been true. It is so easy for us to make our lives and our faiths be about whatever we want them to be. We can make God and God's purposes and plans for our life out to be whatever we want them to be. And I think to different degrees we all do this. But church, what we need is consecration. I heard this story from John Tyson who's a pastor in New York. And he had the privilege of going to the Asbury Revival and speaking at it. And he said what was behind the scenes of this revival was something called the Consecration Room. And the heart behind this room came from a woman from South Korea. And she started noticing while she was living in South Korea a bunch of college students who felt this call, this strong desire in their lives and in their hearts, to go into North Korea and preach the gospel. And if you don't know, North Korea is one of the most dangerous, deadly places that you could possibly be as a Christian today. Even knowing, these college students, even knowing that they could go into North Korea and not come back, they went anyway. Which how, how bold and powerful is a faith like that, right? But behind what's happening in the Asbury Revival is a similar concept with the consecration room. John Tyson said that whenever he was there, the consecration room was there for people to freshly crucify anything that might get in the way of stopping this movement of God. So there would be a person in this room that would ask a series of questions to the person that was about to go on stage, either to lead worship or to speak. And some of these questions included, is there anything in your heart right now that would stop you from being fully present and hosting the glory of God? Are there any sins that you need to confess? Any anxiety that you are carrying? Any worry about how you're gonna be perceived and how people are gonna think about you when you're on stage? And this wasn't just like a yes or no thing. They made people sit like five minutes for all of these questions. And John Tyson said, after experiencing that, he was like, I didn't even want to get out. Like, I I didn't want to go on stage. I just wanted to lay down because he was experiencing the weight and the power and the glory of God in such a profound way that he was like, I don't want to stand before him right now. What our church really needs is not all the up-to-date things, as if we're ever gonna have that, or the perfect program that solves everything, though programs may be helpful, the church needs consecration, a holy dedication of our lives before the Lord, bowing our crowns, bowing our authority and whatever ambition that we might have before the Lord and having this open posture so that we can be responsive to the ways in which God wants to move powerfully in our lives. Because he does. (laughs) And I know that God wants to bring heaven down to earth here through Fourth Avenue. And I believe that we can be that church. Lord, I pray that you help us to be a church that is entirely devoted to you that we knock off all this cultural Christianity that is just so surface level and shallow and we say we want more of you, Jesus. Lord, help us to live lives in which we believe in our bones that you are worthy of everything. You are worthy of all of the decisions that we make. You are worthy of how we spend our time Sunday through Saturday. You are worthy of how we spend money. You are worthy of every single aspect, every fiber of my existence and my being. Lord, help us to be that church. Give us a heart to rededicate our lives to you. To stop being okay with living a powerless life. To stop being okay with spiritual apathy and coasting. But through us, Lord, we pray that your power move mightily and help 4th Avenue to become a church, a kingdom outpost, a funnel from heaven to earth that many people may come to know you and many people find freedom and healing from any of the captivity of the kingdom of darkness. Lord, we pray this in your holy name and we know you will make it happen.